Thank you, Praise Man, for sharing with us this morning. Now, I'm excited to be here with you this morning. Now, I was trying to get all my Facebook friends to pray for me, and I was trying to get their attention, so I decided to create a graphic of a one-man band. I thought about, you know, playing in the band and then preaching, the, just like a one-man band. And I, I got more comments on this one little Facebook post that I have on anything I've ever posted, so I've had a lot of prayers for me. I hope, I hope, I hope all my Facebook friends are praying for me this morning. Jean was teasing me earlier in the week because she knew that I was going to be praying, playing in the... Uh, praise band and preaching and she was teasing me she said I, well I guess what you'll do is you'll just uh, when you get gets time to preach you'll just sling that guitar on your back like Elvis Presley and go to preaching and uh, I thought about it a second I said no I can't preach like Elvis Presley <laughs> don't think I'll be doing that our, our text for this morning comes from the book of Psalms David asked me to preach on Psalm 110 He did not include it in his schedule, although it's one of his favorite psalms, and I told him I would be happy to preach from this psalm because it has so many New Testament connections that it's easy to preach from this psalm for a New Testament professor. I invite your attention to Psalm 110, beginning with verse 1. There are four verses that are subject to our attention this morning. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on the day of battle. Arrayed in holy majesty from the womb of the dawn, you will receive the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, it's quite interesting that in the New Testament, this one psalm is referred to or alluded to so many different times. And I just want to walk you through a couple of those real quickly because they're going to give us a key to what we need to think about when we're thinking about these four verses of the first part of Psalm 110. As we look at these New Testament contexts, the first one that we meet is when Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 22. If you'll turn to Matthew chapter 22, you'll see this argument that Jesus has with the Pharisees. Matthew chapter 22, beginning with verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? Good question. No one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. No one had ever seen the tension that's in this text. This text was taken as a messianic psalm by the Jews, but they never saw the tension. What, is God talking to himself? The Lord said unto my Lord, is God talking to himself? How does that address work? And if David, in speaking of this my Lord, David's calling him my Lord, who is this one that David addresses as Lord? A king would not address his son as Lord. Who is this? The tension in the text, the 
Pharisees had never noticed before. You see, another occasion when we find this being referred to in the preaching of Peter at Pentecost, if you'll turn to Acts chapter 2, you'll see another occasion when this passage is being referred to. In Acts chapter 2, verse 34, Peter is trying to explain Pentecost. The Spirit has come down from heaven and has manifested power upon believers, and believers are speaking in other languages. And Peter is trying to explain the power of the gospel to breach any barrier that prevents the gospel from going anywhere in the world. Have a language problem? I can solve it. I can get this gospel anywhere in the world. So when I tell you to go, you can go anywhere. And you will be able to preach this gospel. And that's what Pentecost is about, this empowering of languages. Meaning this gospel will not be dumb. This gospel will be spoken. And it will be spoken all over the earth. And Peter's trying to explain this pouring out of the Spirit on the church. And in the process... He's talking about Jesus being a son of David. He's talking about Jesus fulfilling the Davidic promises. And in verse 34, he says about David, there's another observation to make. He says, Peter says, For David did not ascend to heaven. Why is that an important observation? Because, as Peter goes on to refer to the Psalm 110.1, verse 1, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This one will be known because he will be at the right hand of God. That's how this anointed one, this Messiah, will be known. He'll be seated at the right hand of God. David never ascended. Peter's just simply pointing out, David nor any of his sons ever ascended such that God could say, sit at my right hand. You'd have to be in the throne room for God to be able to say that. And David and none of his sons had ascended like that. The third time you meet this psalm is in Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 15. We dealt with this in our Sunday school lesson. I'm so excited about my Sunday school teacher does such a great job with our Sunday school lessons. And this Psalm 15 is a part of that passage where David says, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Now, there's an imagery here that you don't get because you don't live in Corinth in the first century. But you'd have to know a little bit about the history of Corinth to know what Paul's referring to here about making your enemy your footstool so that you would be stepping on your enemy resting your foot on your enemy. Well, when I was in Istanbul, in the museum there, there was a huge statue of Hadrian. And this is political propaganda from the Roman Empire. All the statuary is political propaganda. Everything you see from the ancient world is the way they manifested their storyline, what they wanted you to think. And notice this huge statue of Hadrian uh, carved in marble. You'll notice that he is gigantic-sized. He's more than life-size. He's huge. He's more than life-size. And look where his left foot is resting. His left foot is resting upon the enemy that he has just conquered. And that enemy is pictured as pygmy-sized, humiliated in the defeat of battle. And this conquering general has got his left foot on that enemy. And that enemy is kneeling down in humble submission. And his back is being used as a footstool. That's Psalm 110, 1, right there. And that Roman propaganda. 
What's interesting about the Corinthians is they had revolted against Rome. When Rome was in its Mediterranean conquest, the city of Corinth had revolted against Rome, and Rome had destroyed the city. The general Mamias had come through in 146 B.C. and raised the city to the ground. The city of Corinth literally didn't exist. You think we had devastation after, Car- after Katrina? Why, there was still 20% of us that didn't get flooded and the city came back. Corinth was so destroyed when Roman General Mamias destroyed Corinth, it was so raised to the ground, it went uninhabited for a hundred years. Talk about trying to get back. It was uninhabited for a hundred years. And it was not inhabited until the Roman General Julius Caesar reformulated that city, refounded it, and named it after himself. But it took on its old name, Corinth, after a while. But it was a Roman city in 44 B.C., right before Caesar was killed on the Ides of March. He refounded the city of Corinth. Now, if anyone would understand footstool imagery, the victorious victor who has conquered and has got his foot on his enemy's back, the Corinthians would understand that imagery. The conquering victor. And so Paul uses this footstool imagery of the conqueror who has conquered his enemies. And then the next context you'll see the use of this psalm is in Hebrews 1.13. The book of Hebrews is marvelous for what it shares with us. And here is the author of Hebrews telling us about the superiority of this one called the Messiah, the Christ. Talking about his superiority over all. And as he's making that argument... He is saying that this Christ, this Messiah, is even superior to the very angels of God. And to Jews, there couldn't be anything higher in the hierarchy of God that they could conceptualize than the angels of God. That's right next to God himself. Gabriel and Michael, they actually have conversation with God. They get assignments from God. Gabriel, go get the the horns and the trumpets and the electric guitars and let's sing a song. Write me a chorus. We're going to need to sing praise. The king has been born in Bethlehem. These angels are in direct contact with God in the throne room. And here, the author of Hebrews is saying, the one I'm talking about is even superior to the angels. Because in Hebrews 1.13 he says, To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And there's that footstool imagery again. You see it as Jesus is superior to the angels. And then we have been focused on just verse 1 of Psalm 110. All of these allusions in the New Testament are just to Psalm 1. Then you have verse 4 of Psalm 110 and verse 4 has all of its allusions in the book of Hebrews. And the book of Hebrews in chapter 5 makes this analysis in 5 verse 6. And he says in another place, quoting scripture, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This is an allusion to Genesis 14, the famous story of Abraham after he defeated the kings of the valley and had rescued his nephew and others and he was ready to make an offering to God, a thanksgiving offering to God for the victory that he had gained. And this priest simply arrives on the scene as 
as Abraham is getting ready to make his offering, he needs a priest to make his offering too, his offering of thanksgiving. And this priest just simply arrives on the scene. His name is Melchizedek. Who is this guy? Nobody knows. Where does he come from? Nobody knows. Who's his mama? Nobody knows. Who's his daddy? Nobody knows. Don't know his lineage. He just appears on the stage of history. He receives Abraham's offering. He makes that offering to the Most High God. And then he disappears off the stage of history. Never to be seen again. He's a high priest. He appears on the stage of history only one time. He makes one offering. And that offering is good forever. That Melchizedek image then is what the author of Hebrews is using to show us the significance of Christ who transcends the offering of Melchizedek. Melchizedek, king of righteousness, as Jesus is the one who is superior. You are a priest forever on the order of Melchizedek. Who is Jesus Christ? As far as somebody right there in Nazareth would consider Jesus Christ. Who's your mama? Who's your daddy? Where do you come from? What's your real lineage? You, of course, are prejudiced. You're biased by your knowledge of the Gospels. That Jesus' daddy was God. Unknown lineage appears on the stage of history, makes a sacrificial offering that is good for all time. And the author of Hebrews is saying Melchizedek is a type of Christ. He's pointing us to Christ. And then once again, you see in verse 10, and was designated by God to be high priest on the order of Melchizedek. For it is declared you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek in verse 17 and then verse 21. But he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Now when we evaluate all of these allusions to Psalm 110.1 and Psalm 110.4, we begin to see as the New Testament focuses on verse 1 and verse 4, that in Psalm 110, the most important verses are verse 1 and verse 4. That's what our peekaboo into the New Testament has taught us, that those are the most important verses of this psalm. So what do we learn from the very first verse of this psalm? The very first verse of this psalm says that the Lord's anointed, the Messiah, the special one to come, will put all enemies under his feet and he will sit at the right hand of God. You cannot be Israel's king without sitting at the right hand of God. That's what Psalm 110 is teaching Israel. You cannot truly be Israel's king unless you sit at the right hand of God. Now that's a pretty tall order. And then the second thing that we learn is from verse 4. And that is from verse 4, the psalm is teaching us that you cannot be Israel's king if you do not mediate the righteousness of God in a once-for-all sacrifice of eternal value. You will know the true king of Israel because, in fact, his job description. What's your job description? Looking for a job in this tough economy? Write out your resume. And then you try to tweak that resume according to the job you're trying to find. 
So you reword the bullet points so that they match the emphases of the company that you want to sign on with. And so you've got this resume that summarizes all your capabilities and abilities, why you should fulfill that office, why you should be hired for that job. What was the resume for the Messiah? After he's put all enemies under his feet, what is his resume? It's a strange resume. It only has one bullet point. Die for sin. In a once-for-all sacrifice of eternal value. Now, that's not much of a job description, but it took everything Jesus had to fulfill it. Die for sin in a once-for-all sacrifice of eternal value on behalf of sin. You cannot be Israel's king if you do not mediate the righteousness of God in a once-for-all sacrifice of eternal value. Now, that's the picture that we get here of this ideal king. And this is the picture that's confirmed in all these royal psalms. Psalm 110 is out of a category of what we call royal psalms. There are many royal psalms like Psalm 2, Psalm 18, Psalm 20, 21, 45, 72, 89, 110, 132, 144. Eleven of them. Why are they called royal psalms? Because they were used in the actual context of the history of Israel. When Israel was getting ready to anoint its king, these psalms were a part of the royal house and described the king and his God and what that relationship would be like. And one of the great psalms in the whole list of the 11 royal psalms is another one besides Psalm 110. It would be Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is also so crucial to the knowledge of what we are talking about in this anointed one of God, this king of Israel who is supposed to be king of Israel. Psalm 2 says, this royal psalm, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. In the enthronement ceremony, this is what they call an enthronement psalm because it was used at the institution of the king. And in this enthronement ceremony, someone speaks on behalf of God and says the words to the king, you are my son. And those words then show a close relationship between the king and God. You would know Israel's king to be a true king if that king actually represented God on earth. If that king had the ability to be God on earth, representing God to the people of Israel and the people of Israel to God. That is the ideal. And then yet when you look at the history of Israel's kings, you begin to realize this ideal never is met. You review the history of the kings of Israel and the house of Israel, and you'll notice that even at the very beginning when that storyline starts off, it starts with Saul of the tribe of Benjamin. He's appointed king, but he doesn't accomplish his office, and he has to be deposed by God, and another one has to be installed as king, David, from another tribe of Judah. And then David fails, and Solomon and then Solomon fails because he begins to take on all the trappings of all the, God, all the kings around him and he takes multiple wives. The last verse on the story of Solomon is just a sad, sad verse of how he left the way of the Lord 
And even as you go through that list of kings, Ahab and the others, and you just see evil, lying, deceit, adultery, fornication, you see murder, you see everything you would see on a soap on the afternoon TV. And that's the story of Israel's kings. And even when there's a revival, such as with Hezekiah, King Hezekiah and the great revival that he was trying to bring to Israel, trying to restore the worship of God after that worship had been destroyed by Canaanite uh, Baals that had been established and the Asheroth groves, the, the worship in the trees. And Hezekiah is destroying those, those symbols of paganism and he's trying to reinstitute the worship of God. You know what the sad, sad story of that Hezekiah revival is? His son. Hezekiah. His own son, Manasseh. The generation immediately after him is the most evil king Israel ever had. And so the chronicler describes him as the worst king ever for Israel. So even when there is a, a revival in the very next generation, there's the loss of that revival. We have the revival under Josiah, but he's killed untimely by Pharaoh Necho in the valley of Jehoshaphat in a battle he should never have gone into. And so Israel's kings represent a tragic failure a kingship. And so even uh, with the conclusion that we have coming to the end of the story of the kings, you have these sad, sad, sad words that come to us from Second Chronicles. And it's a summary. What can we say of all the story of Israel's kings? It's summarized in Second Chronicles chapter 36. We have the text that we can put before you so you can see this text. Second Chronicles 36, beginning with verse 15. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them through his messengers again and again because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. Things had gotten so bad. That's almost the last words of the chronicler. Well, that's how bad things are before the exile. What did the exile do? Did it cure them? Did it cure the institution of kingship? Not at all. After the exile, you have the story of the Maccabees, the Maccabean brothers who revolt against Syria. And in that revolt, that becomes the Hasmonean dynasty as these Maccabean brothers are given powers by the Syrian throne and then by the Roman throne. And these powers that they gain make the Hasmonean dynasty in the story of Israel. And these Hasmonean kings, it's incredible. The Hasmonean kings are as bad as Israel's kings. They are just like all the kings around them. They are more Hellenistic than the Hellenistic kings are. They are faithful to their patrons, they are faithful to their overlords, and they are more Hellenistic. The Hasmonean kings even bring Hellenism into downtown Jerusalem. Why, there is a Greek gymnasium right down the street from the temple. And who runs it? The priest. 
Now, that wouldn't mean much to you. You think about gymnasium, nice place to work out, YMCA and all that. Not in Greek world. You participated in those activities in the gymnasium in the Greek world in the nude. It was offensive to God. And yet there's a gymnasium downtown Jerusalem, right down from the, down from the temple. That's how Hellenistic these Hasmoneans were. And they even had the audacity to take the priesthood unto themselves. And they, had, they became the high priest and had designated themselves as the high priest of Israel at getting that power of high priesthood, trying to marry it to the kingship. It was so bad that Jews that were disenfranchised who knew what was the difference between what the Hasmoneans were offering for righteousness in Israel and what was really God's intent. Those disenfranchised priests moved out. They left Jerusalem. It was a corrupt, wicked city. God's wrath was going to fall. And they became the community of Qumran, the priests who were disenfranchised by that Hasmonean kingship. We know them today as Qumran, the Dead Sea Scrolls. What about in New Testament times? Does it change much? No, not much at all. As a matter of fact, it keeps getting worse. Well, how can it get worse? Oh, we got Herod to talk about. Herod the Great. Herod the Great is appointed as king of Judea in 40 B.C., and that ends the Hasmonean dynasty, that Jewish dynasty of Jewish resurgence right after the exile. And what do we talk about Herod the Great? Why, Herod the Great is even worse. He is more murderous than we have seen on the streets of New Orleans. I'm telling you, the story here gives you more than you can get on daytime soaps. It gives you more than you can read in your Times-Picayune. Herod the Great, it is reported by several New Testament scholars, having combed through Josephus and other accounts of Herod's reign, probably murdered up to 45 royal Herodians, including his favorite wife, and many sons who were destined to be king. He was so jealous. He was so insecure. Well, why was Herod so jealous and insecure? Because he wasn't even a Jew. But he's on the Jewish throne. Well, who gave him that right? The Romans. He's an Idumean. He's not even a Jew. He's an Idumean. So don't you know he's threatened when the wise men come asking the question, where is he born king of the Jews? Not appointed king of the Jews. Where is he born king of the Jews? And that's where you get that horrible story of Herod sending out his troops and murdering the babies of, Jerusalem, of, of Bethlehem Two years of age and under, murdering innocent infants. Talk about cruel. And that is supposed to be the king. And then the story goes on from Herod. He dies. His kingdom is broken up into three pieces, taken by three of his sons who happened to survive. The old wag in the ancient world was it's better to be Herod's pig than his son because you have a more likelihood of surviving rather than being a pig for slaughter at one of Herod's banquets. It's better to be a pig than a son of Herod. Well, three of these sons did survive and they got the kingdom after him. Archelaus was one of them. Archelaus got Judea, Samaria, and Idumea. 
But he was so evil, he only reigned 10 years. He reigned till 86. He only reigned 10 years. He was so evil, Emperor Augustus had to banish him to Gaul. He was so bad, not even the emperor could put up with it. And this Archelaus is the very reason why Jesus' parents, when they were returning from Egypt, could not resettle there in Bethlehem as they had intended. They couldn't resettle in Bethlehem because of Archelaus, who was worse than his father. So they had to go all the way back to Nazareth. And then you have Antipas, who rules Galilee and Perea. And in the rule of Antipas from 4 B.C. to 39, you have that famous story of Herodias. John the Baptist had preached against the marriage of Herod Antipas and Herodias. Herodias had been the wife of Philip, another Herodian. And Herod Antipas had divorced his Nabataean princess wife in order to marry Herodias. And John the Baptist wouldn't have any of it. And he was willing to stand to the king. He was the only prophet in Israel who stood up to the king. And he told him, you have an adulterous relationship. And you do not deserve to be king. The only prophet in Israel that stood up to the king kind of reminds us of Elijah standing up to Baal and the worship of Baal. And that Elijah figure is why John the Baptist is called in the spirit of Elijah. At another time in Israel's history when her worship was being corrupted and polluted by idols in King Ahab's day. That's what John the Baptist is like. John the Baptist to our generation is like Elijah to his generation. The only prophet who would stand up to the king. And there's John the Baptist standing up to Antipas. Well, Herodias has a daughter, Salome. And Salome dances at a banquet. Her dad's drunk. Antipas is drunk. He promises Salome up to half of his kingdom. What does she want? She goes to ask her mother. Her mother says, ask for the head of John the Baptist. Let me get that guy. And so she does. And so Antipas has John the Baptist beheaded. Oh, that's some king for you. And then you have the third son of Herod, who was Herod Philip. He ruled over uh, the Transjordan area. And Herod Philip is the one who established Pan, the ancient city of Pan, as his capital of his kingdom. Pan's very famous because it had many, many idols to the ancient gods, many idols and shrines there at Pan. It was a famous cultic site where the pagan worship was rife. And this is where Herod Philip decides to put his capital city. And he doesn't do a thing about the pagan worship. Not a thing. He has all the power to do everything. And he puts up with all that pagan worship. You say, you don't recognize Pan? Well, of course you don't because he renamed it as Caesarea Philippi. And you remember that Caesarea Philippi is the place where Jesus, that crucial encounter that Jesus has with his own disciples, when he asks them, who do men say that I am? That crucial question of who do you say Jesus is? Because who you say he is determines how you follow him. Who do you say that I am? And that crucial question Jesus posed in the regions and districts of Caesarea Philippi where a king is sitting on a Jewish throne and has made a pagan cult center his capital city. Talk about being married to your environment. What do you think our thread is here in New Orleans? 
with the environment that we have, our culture. The story doesn't get any better even with Herod's grandsons. You have Herod Agrippa I. That story is told in Acts 12. Herod Agrippa I kills James, the son of John. The brother John kills James and then imprisons Peter. And then himself is slain by God in the theater at Caesarea Philippi, an untimely death. Then you have Herod Agrippa II who just simply sold out to Rome before the war. And after the war he abandoned Judea and lived in Rome as an elite aristocrat pampered by the Romans. Even abandoned Judea. What kind of a king is that? He abandoned his homeland. We have walked through a thousand years of Jewish kingship history. A thousand years. Been on a jet flight here just simply to make this one point. Kingship in Israel was an utterly bankrupt institution. And God has a huge problem on his hand because there is a promise that God makes that he's got to fulfill. This promise that he he makes to David, while David is trying to build him a house, we have the storyline in 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel verse, uh, chapter 7, beginning with verse 5. David thinks, well, I think I'm going to build a house for God. I've got to have a place for the ark, and I think I'll build a house for God. This story here in chapter 7 actually is the story of three houses. The house David wanted to build, the house that Solomon built, and the house that God built himself. It's a story of three houses. David wanted to build a house, but he's not going to be able to. Go and tell David, my servant, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell dwell in? Then verse 12. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, that temple. And I will establish his throne forever. And then verse 16. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. That's interesting, huh? Hasn't God got a real problem on his hands? Your throne will be established forever. Your house will be forever. But we're talking the likes of Ahab and Manasseh and Antipas, Herod Antipas. Herod Archelaus, you don't want to preserve forever that which is not worth preserving. So what is it that God is actually saying he's going to build? What house is he actually going to build and what will he preserve? Well, we get that storyline out of the story of Jesus. As we look at Jesus confounding the Pharisees in Matthew 22, that verse that we've already read, how does David say, the Lord says to my Lord? The Pharisees had not ever thought about it. How could he be David's son? And Jesus is trying to point out there's got to be something else to this Messiah than being just simply son of David. As a matter of fact, being son of David is not the cure. It's the problem. Being son of David is not the cure. It's the problem. The institution of kingship was like a malignant cancer in the house of Israel, eating it away, destroying the very body in which it resided. So when Jesus comes, they are not ready for the cleansing that he's going to bring in order that he can establish the true house of David. The true house of David is not in the loins of the king of Israel, David. The true house of David 
is in Jesus Christ. He is the one and only Son of David that established the Davidic throne forever according to the righteousness that God always intended the king to be, representing himself to Israel and Israel to God. Jesus Christ is the only truly Son of David God ever intended. And as a matter of fact, Jesus Christ brings a righteousness that just confounds everyone. To the, uh, to the Pharisees who wanted to push out those Pharisaic rituals of the priest to the people, they thought maybe that'll get Israel righteous. To the Sadducees who want to push righteousness in temple observance, Jesus brings a righteousness that is above all righteousness. He brings a righteousness that is not what he does, but who he is. Who is he? He is somebody who actually knows God. And one thing is clear in this storyline of Jesus. He brings a righteousness in which you see him changing people. You see Jesus making a difference in people's lives. Jesus makes a difference. He makes a real difference. He talks to adulterers. He touches lepers. He walks with the lost. He engages conversation with the doubting. He is in touch with real human beings, with real problems. And in every storyline of every person Jesus ever touches, that person feels the power of God. God is alive in Jesus Christ. And so the very righteousness that God had always to be intended to be brought into your life and my life, that righteousness is because Jesus brings the very presence of God to us. Emmanuel, God with us. We have to have that. Why? Because that is the only way that righteousness will ever be established among human beings. God with us. And if God is not with you, you will never be able to live a life other than one that is bound for damnation because there is nothing but damnation for us outside of Jesus Christ. He's the only son of David who ever did that, who ever healed the paralytic and then at the same time said, your sins are forgiven. You don't want just your body healed. That's not enough. You want your soul healed. And that's what Jesus brings. Jesus is the only one. The New Testament argues that Jesus can be the only possible son of David because he is the only one of Davidic descent that ever fulfilled Psalm 110. And how did he do it? He lived a life of righteousness, touched people, changed their lives, and then died on a cross in a once-for-all sacrifice for sin on the order of Melchizedek, never to be repeated again in history, a sacrifice that absolves sin. And that Jesus is now seated at the right hand of God. Jesus Christ is the only one that God himself said Psalm 2's enthronement words over. Think about it. When Jeroboam was 
sanctified as king, when Rehoboam was sanctified as king, when Ahab was sanctified as king, when Manasseh was sanctified as king, as the oil was poured upon them, did they hear the words of God, this is my son? Not one of them. But on the day that Jesus was baptized, what did they hear? But the enthronement of the king. It is an enthronement ceremony, that baptism. It's when the king is enthroned. Because at the baptism of Jesus, God said to the only son of David that he was going to claim as his own son, God said, this is my beloved Son, and I love the way he puts in the beloved. That's not in the psalm text. God amends the text because he's so pleased with Jesus. Not just this is my son. This is my beloved son. Oh, what a king I have for you. Oh, what a king I have for you. And Jesus lived out that kingdom and that kingship among us. And he taught us how that kingship works. That kingship works on the basis of the Lord's Prayer. I remind you of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We put the words of the Lord's Prayer up because there are several different versions of it. But the words of the Lord's Prayer, here they are. Say them with me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What? Your kingdom come. How? Your will be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus declared in his inaugural sermon at Nazareth that this power of righteousness that's being brought into an individual's life is brought through him. And the people who will know it will be the poor, the oppressed, the lame, the hurting. Real people with real problems. A real kingdom for real people with real problems. And this king is here for you this morning. He reigns. He rules. And he's subjugating all enemies unto his righteousness and he is establishing his righteousness on earth how your will be done where on earth as it is in heaven what your kingdom come how your will be done where on earth as it is in heaven Jesus died doing that will of God and that is our task And so I conclude with an urgent request. Just so that we know the significance of what God is doing in our midst. One of the grandest things that we have engaged in a long time is the care effect. I want you to know that as a seminary professor, there is nothing that I believe in more. That we are doing as a church that actually qualifies us to be called a church than the care effect. Now, I know that we've been engaged in this and we've got leaders for this. I realize that. But it may be significant to you that you 
be able to recharge your batteries so that you can continue to lead out in this effort? Do you ever feel like you just can't get people on board? Do you ever feel like I'm the only one who really cares? Do you ever feel like this is something that I just can't get going? It's always just me. Don't give up. Please don't give up. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And as Jesus touched the leper and embraced the lost and helped the needy, that's the kingdom that he established and died to sanctify. A care effect is one of those ways that we realize the Lord's prayer on earth. And I want you to commit yourself to that care effect. Just simply as we have the time of invitation, I, I just want you to pray a prayer to God. And just say, Lord, I've been flagging in my zeal for this care effect. But I want to renew my commitment to this important activity of our church. And if you've not considered the care effect being a part of these ministries, multiple ministries, it's beautiful because they've got so many ministries to be involved in. If you've not considered doing something with the care effect, would you this morning consider letting God talk to your heart to open up your heart to volunteer to be a part of one of these care effect ministries? That's what this invitation is about. And lastly, the invitation is about those who are seated here who really know that they don't know God personally. You know who you are. It's a relationship. It's real. And you don't know God. We are here to introduce you to the Son of God who is King over all kings, Almighty Jesus Christ. And in that relationship, He'll bring the righteousness of God into your life, empower your life, give you new life, and you can live a powerful life in the kingdom of God. If you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, would you do that this morning? We'll have ministers here to greet you as we stand and sing our hymn of invitation. Let me have a word of prayer with you as you stand. Let me have a word of prayer with you. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we've had this morning to be challenged by your word, by this wonderful Psalm 110. Help us, Father, to live the way we should live. And all God's people prayed together the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven.